Thank you for downloading the Grove City Vineyard Sermon Podcast. Enjoy today's message. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is where we're going to be camping out today. And I'm just going to jump on in. We're going to be starting in verse 1 of John chapter 5. This is a story that many of you will be familiar with. This is what we read. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, one of the marks of a good friend of a good brother or sister or parent or spouse, one of the marks of a, a good friend is that they're willing to challenge you. Did you know this one yet? It's not, it's not particularly helpful or healthy to just surround yourself with yes men, people who, who affirm every decision that you make. But we need to be surrounded by people who in love are willing to confront our biases and our faults in order to help us grow and mature. This is what a good friend, this is what a good family member does. And so, as the good friend that he is, Jesus regularly challenges us in order that we might grow as a result. And and in today's passage, we find three ways that Jesus routinely challenges us. And so to begin, in today's passage, we're, we're reminded that Jesus often challenges our patience. He challenges our patience. That's my first point for today. Challenges our patience. You know, we're told in verse 5 that the man that Jesus healed had been paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years. That is longer than I have been on this planet. 38 years. We can assume that he had been an invalid for most of his life. More than likely, he would have never been able to marry, and he would have had no way of supporting himself. What an incredibly long time to wait for a healing, is it not? And yet Jesus often keeps us waiting, doesn't he? Here we are, eight months in, still waiting for this pandemic to subside. I I remember at the beginning of the pandemic in in March, I I remember thinking, okay, well surely by by Memorial Day, things are going to be turned around. And then, okay, well surely by the 4th of July, okay, well surely by the time fall hits, and and yet here we are. And some of you today, you might be waiting for a new job opportunity. 
You, you don't know how, how long you can continue to work such long hours or perhaps how you can continue to work in such a toxic work environment. Others here are waiting for a spouse. You're praying that this would be your last holiday season without a relationship. Perhaps this morning you're praying that your health might return. You're praying that the pain might subside or you're praying that the treatment might begin working. Friends, all of us here are waiting for something. All of us are trying to exercise patience as we wait for Jesus to move. And so all of us have to fight against self-pity, against cynicism and defeat as we wait. And just as an aside, I've discovered that one of the best ways to battle self-pity as we wait is to simply sit down and have a meal with another person or another family. This is, for me, the most helpful way to battle self-pity. Because as you sit down with another person, what you discover inevitably is that they're in the process of waiting as well. You might find that they too have a child who's walked away from the faith, or that their relationship with their parents is complicated to say the least. Or that they have financial or health issues that you were previously unaware of. Friends, it's easy to come into a room like this and just assume that everyone around you has an easier life than you. To just assume that everyone else's job is stress-free and that their marriages have perfect communication and that their bodies are free of physical pain. But when you actually sit down and you hear people's stories, you realize that all of us are playing the waiting game for one reason or another. And all of us are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus well amidst the real joys and the real disappointments of this life. Now, you might ask, well, why does the Lord continually ask us to wait? Why does Jesus so often try our patience when he has unlimited resources at his disposal? Well, you know, as a father of a little boy, it's helpful for me to think about my relationship with my son as I process why we're, we're so often told to wait. You know, when I think about my five-year-old son, Sam, my, my thoughts are, are dominated by two themes. Two themes. Number one, I, I just constantly think about how, how much I, I love him, how absolutely grateful I am for my son. You know, it is not uncommon for my wife and I at the end of a long day to put our son down and we're just tired and we're beat. If you're, you're parents of a young kid, you just know this one. It's like, finally, we're, we're down. He's down. And yet, it's not uncommon for us at that moment to get on the couch and pull out our phone and begin to look at old videos or photos of our child. You, you, you know, you can get on your photos app and it will tell you, here's photos from two years ago or videos from three years ago on this day or five years ago on this day. So regularly, we just find ourselves, after hanging out with our kid all day, just looking at, oh my gosh, look at our kid four years ago on this day or look at him three years ago on this day. Isn't he cute? You know, obviously we have no life, which is true. <laughs> but it's also the case, we just love this little kid. We just can't get enough of him. So when I think about my son, I'm just dominated by my thoughts of love for him. But secondly, my thoughts are dominated by my desire for him to grow up and be a good man. I just, I long for him to look more like Jesus. That's what I want for him. You know, my, my favorite verse to pray over my son comes from Acts chapter 11, verse 24. It's actually from the New Living Translation. 
And I don't often read the, the New Living Translation. I, I typically stick with the NIV, the Necessary and Vineyard version. But I was reading the NLT a, a while back, and I just stumbled upon this verse. And I, I said to the Lord, I, th- this is my verse that I'm going to just routinely pray over my son. And it's a, a reference to Barnabas, one of the early followers of Jesus. And it goes like this. Acts eleven twenty four 24 says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith. Just love that verse. And I just remember thinking, God, if there's any prayer that I could pray for my son, would he grow up to be a good man? Would he be full of the Holy Spirit? Would he be strong, strong in faith? You know, if you're a parent, right now. You, you can steal that verse from me. You can pray that over your own son, over your own daughter. You can pray that over yourself. Father, would you help me to be a good man, a good woman, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith. And you know, because I love my son, because I, I long for him to look more like Jesus, because my, my thoughts about my son are just dominated by these two themes, I tell my son to wait all day long. All day long, it feels like all I'm telling my son is is wait. No, you cannot have a popsicle for breakfast. You need to wait. No, you cannot watch another show. You've got to wait until tomorrow. You've already had way too much screen time today. No, we cannot buy a toy at Target. You need to wait. You're a month and a half out from Christmas. You're going to get more toys from your grandparents than you need. You just need to wait. You need to wait. Now, you might say, well, gosh, Christian, is it outside of your budget, outside of your resources to buy your kid a $5 gift from Target? And I would say, of course it's not outside of my budget. But you know what? I'm not thinking about my budget when I tell my son to wait. I'm thinking about his character. I'm thinking about the man that I want him to grow up to be. And I'm trying to protect him from entitlement. I'm trying to protect him from ingratitude. And because I'm, I'm continually thinking about my son's character, because my, my thoughts are just dominated by this theme, instead of doing what is easiest or even most convenient in the moment, I tell him to wait. I tell him to wait. Friends, the reason why Jesus so often keeps us waiting, the reason why the answer is so often no, is because if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have a Father in heaven whose thoughts about you are dominated by two themes. Number one, he is so in love with you. He's so in love with you. There, there are none of us. It doesn't matter how many books you've read about the topic, how many Bible studies you've been through. There are none of us who have combed the depths of the Father's love for us, of the Father's love for you. He loves you more than you realize. When each of us gets to heaven, those of us who are followers of Jesus, I I think what will blow us away the most is fully understanding, or at least understanding with even greater measure, the depth of God's love for us. But secondly, he longs for you to look more and more like Jesus. His His thoughts are dominated by this theme. Jesus has been appointed to continually pray for you, to perpetually pray for you, because your Father so longs for you to be holy, for you to look more like Jesus. And so I I like to picture Jesus continually praying over you and me, Acts 11.24, that you would be a good man, a good woman, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith. 
And because your Father is continually, perpetually, just forever committed to your holiness, He tells you no. He tells you to wait all of the time. He tells us to wait knowing that the perseverance and faith that we're going to need for further down the road can only be produced in our hearts through waiting. Just the way that it works. You want to grow in perseverance? You want to grow in faith? You need to wait. It's just the way that it works. There's just no way to grow those muscles. Look, if you want to grow more muscle mass, what do you have to do? You have to go to a gym and you have to lift heavy things often. It's just the way that it goes. You can't read a men's fitness magazine and grow more muscles. That's not how it works. It's a cause and effect. Do you want greater perseverance in your life? Do you want to be able to face the trials that are coming down the road for you? You want greater faith? Then you're going to have to learn how to wait. This is the way, the tool that God uses to produce faith and perseverance. You know, the, the masters are going on right now. Some of you might be following that. These guys have all these clubs in their bags, any that they can choose from. When God wants to build faith in your life, he only has one club in his bag. Do you know that? And it's playing the waiting game, asking you to wait. The old Pentecostal Smith Smith Wigglesworth, there we go. It's a fun name. Smith Wigglesworth says this. I love this quote. He says, great faith is a product of great fights. Great testimonies are the outcome of great tests. Great triumphs can only come out of great trials. He says, you want a great faith? You're going to need to go through some great fights. You want a great testimony? You need some great tests. You want some great triumphs? You're going to need some great trials. That's the way that it goes. Jesus challenges our patience regularly. And secondly, Jesus challenges our expectations. Let's read verses 6 through 9. When Jesus saw them lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Jesus challenges our expectations. That's the second point. You know, there was apparently a a legend in Jesus' day that occasionally an angel would come to the pool of Bethesda and stir the waters and that the first person into the pool would be healed. That was the legend. And that's why this man says to Jesus, I have no one to help me into the water when the water is stirred. For years this man had thought, if I could just get into the pool at the right time, I'd be healed. And yet Jesus, completely disregarding this man's expectations, proceeded to heal him simply by telling him to pick up his mat and walk. This man found healing in a way he would have never expected. Jesus repeatedly defies our expectations, doesn't he? Haven't you seen this in your own life? Some here might say, you know, I always thought I was going to raise biological children, and yet here we are on the verge of becoming foster parents. Or I always thought I was going to be a stay-at-home mom, but our, our finances now just won't allow it. I have to work. You might say, I'd always thought that at this point in my life, I'd be in full-time ministry. That's what I thought God had for me. Or I always thought at this point in my life, I would have moved out from my parents' home by now. 
I thought I'd be retired by now, some of you might be saying. Or I thought I would be living closer to extended family. Jesus routinely, continually defies our expectations of what our life should look like, doesn't he? And not only did Jesus challenge the expectations of the paralytic man, but he challenged the expectations of the Pharisees. Let's read verses 9 through 12 together. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The Pharisees simply couldn't believe that God would heal someone on the Sabbath. They had taken God's commandment not to work on the Sabbath, and they had expanded, expanded his own commands. The Pharisees created 39 separate categories for what constituted as work. 39 categories, going far and beyond what was intended in the original command to honor the Sabbath. And so because Jesus didn't operate within their little box, because he refused to conform to their arbitrary standards and their expectations, they failed to rejoice over such a wonderful miracle. And friend, let me tell you, it is the grace of God that the Lord chooses not to conform to our plans. Do you know that yet? That he chooses not to go along with our timelines and our projections and our expectations. It is the grace of God that Jesus does not conform to our actions and plans. Because forget about running the world. If we were simply given the keys to run our own lives, if we could dictate the course of our days, we would make an absolute mess of things. Let me me offer you an illustration to, to help drill this home. I want to show you a picture of the world's biggest corn maze. World's biggest corn maze. This is the Richardson Corn Maze in Springfield, Illinois. We have a Star Trek theme that particular year. It spans about 28 acres, so about 28 football fields. This place is huge. It has about 9 to 10 actual miles of trail within the maze. you imagine how easy it is to get lost in this thing? 9 to 10 miles of trail. Now imagine with me for a moment that that you went to the start of the corn maze with a walkie-talkie in your hand while a, a good friend took a walkie-talkie with them to the top of the observation deck right outside the maze, which overlooks the entire maze. So they're up on top of the observation deck with their binoculars and their walkie-talkie, and they're helping you navigate through this maze. Now, the task would be simple, wouldn't it? You would simply need to trust that your friend on the observation deck, that they have a better viewpoint than you, and that they are going to keep you on the right path. But if you've ever found yourself in a corn maze before, you know that the right path, it often feels counterintuitive, doesn't it? For if the exit is on the the western side of the maze, if if where you're trying to get to, if if the exit is on the western part of the maze, then everything in you says, I should be heading west. I want to head toward the exit. That's what you're thinking. But you know, that's not how a corn maze works. Because the westward path that you're you're on in this current moment might soon hit a dead end, or even worse, it might take a sharp turn and take you two miles in the opposite direction. And so your friends might actually tell you to start heading east, 
or tell you to start heading south or tell you to start heading north. And after a while, you might be tempted to think, it feels like I'm headed in the wrong direction. I'm moving further and further from the exit, from the place where I want to ultimately end up. In fact, I'm further from the exit than when I started. And it is in that moment that you need to trust that your friend on the observation deck, who towers above the entire maze, who has the entire maze before them, that they have a better viewpoint than you. Friend, one of the marks of a mature believer is that they understand that in this life, their viewpoint is absolutely limited. They understand that each of us can see about five feet in front of us. And so when the Lord throws an unexpected turn into, an or into a mature believer's life, when their promotion doesn't come, when their bid for their dream home falls short, when their personal business doesn't take off, when their heater doesn't make it through the winter as expected. A mature believer, despite their disappointment, can say, Jesus, I know that you're up there on that observation deck. I know that you tower over the world, that you tower over my life, that all of it is before you. And I know that you can see the big picture. And so even though this path that you've placed me on feels absolutely counterintuitive and like nothing that I would ever draw up, I believe, Jesus, by faith, by faith, that you're going to get me through this mace. I believe that you're better at arranging my life than I am. Friend, I, I, I truly believe that some of us here today need to come to a place of surrender. It's one thing to understand theoretically or conceptually that Jesus' viewpoint or understanding is better. And it's another to surrender to his plan, to surrender to his will. Some of us here today need to surrender our timelines. You do. You have expectations of when things should happen in your life, and you just need to surrender that. Some of us need to surrender the dreams that we have for our business, for our career. We need to surrender our conceptions of what our life or what our family or what our finances should look like. Some of us need to come before the Father today and say, I choose your path for my life over my own. It is really easy to affirm that in the abstract, but when you're hurting, when you're waiting, when you're in the midst of a really hard time. It is hard to say, Jesus, I choose your life over my own, over my best plans. Some of us need to come before the Father to say, today and say, I just, I don't want to fight you on this anymore. I'm choosing to trust you. And, and you know, of course we want to maintain social distancing, but you know, here after my last point, I have one more point to go. We're going to sing another worship song, and some of you might even want to come forward to, to the front steps. And just as a way of, of physically saying, Jesus, I, I want to surrender my timeline, my family, my finances, my priorities or preferences. You can come and you can just kneel. And you can, you can surrender those things to the Lord. Jesus, he challenges our expectations. And then finally, Jesus challenges our perspective. This is our last point. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 together. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. 
stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. When Jesus once again encountered this paralytic man at the temple, he spoke to him in what we would consider today pretty pointed language, didn't he? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, what could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? Well, death would certainly be worse, but Jesus wasn't speaking about death here. The reality is, is that there are many today whose lives are are chock full of sin, who do not die at an early age. No, Jesus was speaking here of hell. He was saying that if this man did not stop sinning and turn to Jesus as his Savior, that he would be consigned to hell for all eternity. In the midst of the paralytic man's jubilation that he had just been healed and that his life would forever be changed, Jesus challenged his perspective, reminding him that there's something even more important than this life we live here on earth. And this is what Jesus always does with us. He routinely challenges our thinking and our preconceived notions about what is most valuable and about what is most important. Listen, Jesus' entire life was meant to serve as one giant challenge to our perspective on what's most important in life. For for what do we know about Jesus' life? Let me run through some of the highlights for you really quickly. Well, he was born to parents who weren't influential or famous. We know that about Jesus. He had no money. He had no money. Yes, his needs were taken care of, but he lived day by day on the kindness of others. What else do we know about Jesus? We know that he was not particularly attractive. Isaiah 53 says that he had no beauty to attract us to him. He was born in a country that was under oppression. He did not live in a free land. So it is possible to follow the Lord well, even in a country that is oppressed. He spent the majority of his life completely unknown. Yes, late in life he achieved some notoriety in Galilee and Galilee, in Judea. But he would have still been unknown by 99.9% of the humans walking around earth at the time of his death. He had no sex life to speak of throughout his entire life. He was not, as far as we know, a world-class carpenter, the best in his field by any means, but, but I imagine he was more than, than competent in his trade. And then lastly, he died young. He died while his mother was still alive. Now, why do these facts about Jesus' life challenge our perspective? Well, it's because Jesus was the happiest man to ever live, the happiest individual to ever walk around on this planet. In Hebrews chapter 1, that writer of Hebrews borrows from Psalm 45 and says that Jesus was anointed by his Father with the oil of gladness. I love that. He was anointed with the oil of gladness. Jesus was incredibly joyful. That's why children were attracted to him. That's why they just flocked to his side. That's why sinners didn't find him off-putting. He wasn't some dour curmudgeon. And that's why he was routinely accused of being a glutton and being a drunk, because Jesus was just continually filled with joy. He knew how to have a good time. Years before Paul would tell the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always, Jesus was modeling this behavior. How fascinating is it then 
that those things that we feel like we absolutely need to be happy, to be fulfilled, were not things that Jesus experienced as a man. We're not things that the happiest individual who ever lived actually experienced. You know, so often we say to ourselves, if I just had a little bit more money, not much more, but if I just had 10% more, well, then I'd be happy. And yet Jesus had no money except what was provided by others. You know, so often we think, if I could just lose 20 pounds, if I could just lose 15 pounds, if I could just get rid of these crow's feet on my face, then I would be happy. And yet Jesus, the happiest individual to ever live, he had no beauty to attract us to him. Some of us might say, you know, if I could just reach a certain degree of fame, even 15 minutes worth of fame, I would be happy. And yet Jesus lived in utter obscurity for the first 30 years of his life. And then for the last three, again, he was only popular in the backwoods of Galilee and, and in Judea. Or we say, you know, if, if only I had a fulfilling sex life. If only I was married, or if only my marriage's love life was better, and yet Jesus died having never had sex. Some of us say, if only I could get to the top of my field, if only I were known as being truly gifted or truly great, or, or maybe if only I, I could become CFO, then I would be satisfied, then I'd be happy. And yet Jesus, is, as far as we know, is never celebrated for his carpentry. Jesus' entire life was meant to challenge your thinking about what you need to be happy and fulfilled. His entire life and message were meant to challenge your perspective on what is of most importance. What we value, what we chase after, what we seek routinely, daily, is so often seen as worthless, empty in the eyes of Jesus. Let me, let me close with this last thought. Let me wrap this up here. You know, this past summer, I, I went on an early morning walk with my wife, Celeste, and uh, our son, Sam. And a bit of the way down the street, this is a true story, there were some men standing around a couple of pickup trucks, and they were looking rather dejected. They were standing in front of a house that was clearly receiving a, a new roof, but none of them were working. They were all just kind of huddled around their trucks, which I thought was odd. And on our way home, as we walked in front of this same house, the owner of the house, our neighbor, informed us that these roofers had shown up and begun taking off her roof, even though she hadn't ordered it. These men were supposed to be taking the roof off a house across the street. Oh, that's a bad day. That's a bad phone call you got to make to the boss there. And so my neighbor had woken up after hearing noise on her roof and gone outside and found that there were men tearing off her shingles. Can you imagine how awkward that would be at 7 a.m. to find strangers throwing shingles down off your perfectly good roof? And you know, I couldn't help but feel sorry for these roofers. I didn't feel sorry for, for my neighbor because she was going to get a new roof out of the deal, all right? So she was, she was fine. But I felt sorry for the roofers, for they had spent the morning wasting their energy on the wrong projects, wasting all that time, wasting all that time on a home that wouldn't provide the payouts that they were looking for. They were getting no money out of this home. And you know, isn't that a picture of our lives so much of the time? 
We waste so much energy on trivial things, hoping for the payout, hoping for the fulfillment that never ultimately comes. Friend, will following the Buckeyes religiously provide the payout that you're ultimately looking for? Honestly? Well, following the Browns, the Steelers, whatever that looks like for you, is that going to provide you with the payout that you're ultimately looking for? Will spending 30 minutes in front of the mirror every morning, is that going to provide you with the payout that you're looking for? Will the extra wing on your home that you don't really need or advancing another rung in the company, is that going to provide you with the, with the payout that you're looking for? Jesus regularly, routinely, he challenges us to change our perspective. He challenges us to value intimacy with our Father and service toward others and deep and meaningful friendships over and above those trivial achievements that will never provide the the payout that we're looking for. So let us reorient our lives so that we might find the life that Jesus died to give us. Let us change our perspectives and pursue that which truly has value. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stay in church and we're going to...